Amen. I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Praise the Lord. And today we're going to complete our series in the pursuit of God. We started out looking at our pursuit as defined in Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2. We looked at Christ the object of our pursuit, found in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10. And today we're going to look at the power or the passion for our pursuit. And that is the person of the Holy Spirit. What should be the motivation and fuel for this journey we call life and the power and persuasion that drives us. It's not only the pursuit of God, it's not only Christ as the object of that pursuit, but it is indeed the fullness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And along the way, we might have gained a lot of knowledge. But intellectual knowledge, data points, will not be sufficient enough to drive us because of our own lust and our fallen nature just tends to get in the way. Every trip that you take requires fuel, doesn't it? Whether you're taking your car, whether you're, you're going to do it yourself. Every mission must have supplies. Therefore, we also as believers in Jesus Christ, likewise, we require power and passion. For our pursuit of God. Just think about it. If you were going to pursue the Lord God, could you pursue the Lord God with indifference? Can you pursue the Lord God with coldness? That, that, that is not consistent with what we see in the Scripture. And the only place we can find that power and passion is in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see in our text today the following. The Spirit The Spirit's desires against the flesh. We're going to look at that in verses uh, 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8. Why? It becomes particularly important for us to understand the the competition, the competing things that rage within us. It's critical that we understand that. The second element is the Spirit's power for the pursuit. How does He enable us for that pursuit? And thirdly, the Spirit leads us in that pursuit so we're going to be taking a look at that we'll also be taking a look at verses 12 through 14 and is our custom we'll we're going to go through the entire uh, word of god does anybody need a bible by the way if you need a bible we have bibles for you here you can have one just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get a bible too so open with me to romans chapter 5 romans chapter 5 i'm sorry romans chapter 8 I get the verses backwards. No, Romans chapter 5. No, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning with, guess what verse? 5. You're starting to get used to my uh, demented way of thinking here. Romans 8, verse 5, it says, For those who according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit to the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. 
For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Heavy words, critical words. Right here we see one of the greatest examples of compare and contrast in the Bible. You know I always tell you, when you read the Scripture, you'll see a lot of compare and contrast contrast in the Scriptures. And with absolute clarity, the Bible states what the lifestyle of believers and unbelievers look like. I don't know if people realize that all the time. The mindset on the flesh is death. It's death. Spiritual. And the uh, mindset of those who are in the flesh is considered hostile toward God. As a matter of fact, not only is it hostile to God, it cannot subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Paul speaks of these things of the flesh versus things of the Spirit. Turn in your Bible over to Galatians chapter 5. Hold yourself in Romans chapter 8. Just turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail. Let's take a look. Let's define what are the things of the flesh, what are the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition one to another, so that you may not do the things you please. Well, that's interesting. Look at 5.19 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to submit to you something there. That list is not exhaustive. There are other deeds of the flesh. There's idolatry and things that we hide in our heart. There's pride. There's bitterness. There's anger. There's enmity. Other things that can cause us to fall. But Paul is very, very, very clear that the flesh sets itself up in opposition to the Spirit. Now, why do you think that is? Why would the flesh do that? Why would Satan, in his strategic planning, if you could say that, would use the things of the flesh to hinder, to harass the believer? Primarily because his goal is that no believer, no one anywhere, would give glory to God. And I've said this a lot of time. There's a lot of people that see a demon behind every rock. You know, they tell you these great stories of, you know, they opened the closet and there was a green thing in there. Well, ah, you know, and they got afraid. And listen, that's great. But it's important that we realize that the deeds of the flesh are not always these overt, heinous sins. I mean, look at what Paul talks about here. In 519, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
Now, when they're listed in that kind of manner, they sound horrific, don't they? You might read it and go, well, that's not me. I'm not immoral. I'm not impure. I'm not overly sensual. Idolatry, I don't bow before idols. Oh, but the devil is a liar and a snake, isn't he? And the devil will always paint something very different. Yes, idolatry is putting anything else in front of God, the worship of anything else in front of God. We live in a society and we say in our society, well, we want you to pursue the uh, American dream. We want you to pursue the American dream, right? We want you to have that beautiful home. God's not adverse to that. God's not adverse to you having some wealth. God's not adverse to all those other different things. And yet what happens? More people dedicate their lives, their efforts toward pursuing things. That becomes the key driver, if you're a business person, right, you want, to, you want to make your revenue, you want to make your earnings, but when it goes beyond that, when it becomes consuming, when it becomes the passion, when you're ignoring the things of God, guess what you've do- just done? You just committed idolatry. Other people have idolatry with their looks. Obviously, I don't have that problem. <laughs> but other people are so consumed with clothing and so consumed with how they look and so consumed with how they come off to others, right? And they're lost in this. Our society tells and encourages men and women, it's okay to be, quote, sexy. What is sexy? It's immorality. It's sensuality, right? That people would say, oh, you know, you look so sexy today, and we would take that as a compliment. You see, the enemy is going to masquerade. The enemy is going to hide. The enemy is going to do everything he can to deceive the child of God from rendering to God that which is due God, which is holiness, righteousness, and worship to God. And Paul is making it very clear that our enemy, Satan, is constantly causing us and trying to get us to stumble. Because when we stumble, do we give God the glory? When we stumble and fall, it gives the enemy of of God, saying, look at that guy, look at that gal, they call themselves a Christian. Look how messed up they are. They can't get their own stuff together. For many, he tempts us with the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of this world if that is where we're pursuing and we're pursuing vacations and we're pursuing the the things of the world when we do that there is an immediate adverse of effect now don't get me wrong it's not a sin to go on a vacation can we just establish that but when it becomes the object of our pursuit then we have to ask ourselves, is something wrong? When there is no satisfaction with the first trip and take the second trip and the third trip and the fourth trip and the fifth trip, when we're competing with others to keep up with their lifestyle, when the pleasures of the world consume us to the extent that they crowd out God, they crowd out our pursuit of Christ, they crowd out our satisfaction in God, 
when we're seeking to satisfy ourselves with something other than the Lord God, then that's a problem. That's a problem. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? He said, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in all things shall be added unto us. I know a lot of prosperity teachers say, see, the Bible says all things, all things. You can get all things. But what are the all things? Well, if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, the all things are the things of righteousness, the things belonging to the kingdom. If you seek first the kingdom of God, then kingdom righteousness follows. Those are the all things. If you are seeking God, then kingdom righteousness follows. And that's the point that Jesus is making. We're to hold fast to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and see that we do not drift away from it. Hebrews 2.1 The writer of Hebrews says this, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. That term drift away is a nautical term. It's used of a boat or ship that isn't moored to the dock. It's not tied to the dock. So what happens to that ship as the tide begins to move in and out? because it's not anchored, because it's not tied to what happens. It begins to drift with the current. That's the warning that the writer of Hebrews is writing. Hey, pay much closer attention to this, lest you drift away from the root and the foundation of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14 say this. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and the love which is in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. As a believer, you have been entrusted with the sound words. You have been entrusted with the faith. You have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And what's the admonition of Paul to Timothy here? retain it hold fast to it listen one of the things that happens in this day and age you're constantly being bombarded with messaging if you watch tv there's commercials if you watch youtube there's commercials if you go online and social social media there's commercials you're getting hit with the marketing that comes at you you're being hit with the attitudes of a fallen world that are also marketing to you. What do you think social media is doing? When you look out on Facebook and you see, oh, they got to go to Europe. I, I, I never got to go to Europe. Oh, they went to Africa and they took a safari. I never got to go to Africa on a safari. What does it do to you? It produces in you wants and desires Say, oh, I want to do that. Oh, I want to do that. And then you become immersed in it. You become absorbed by it. And when you become immersed in it and you become absorbed by it, guess what? What happens to your pursuit of God? It wanes. It has a tendency to grow cold. That's why Jesus said that we are to desire first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things shall be added unto you. Isn't it the Christian's heart and the desire to want the things of the kingdom? 
We talked about in Psalm 42, as the deer pant for the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, O God. I thirst for you, God, for the living God. And we said, look, look at the psalmist, his passion and his desire. He wants God, he wants God. In Psalm 63, 1, it says, I search for you, O Lord, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And he's desiring and he's yearning for God. And we say, oh, how admirable, oh, how wonderful. Oh, if I could only be like that. We saw the testimony of the Apostle Paul when we looked at the object of his pursuit. And we saw that the object of Paul's pursuit in Philippians 3.7 is Christ. And that should be the object of our pursuit. We should want Christ. We should desire Christ. We should desire his righteousness to be like Christ. And so we make Christ the object of our pursuit. And now as we're going to see in Romans chapter 8, we're going to see that not only do we want those pursuits, not only do we need those pursuits, but we need the Spirit of God to propel us and give us the passion for that pursuit. In Revelations 3, verse 3, the Lord tells those that lay out the sea of remember therefore what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. I therefore, uh, I therefore you will not wake up. I will come like a thief and you will not know it. Listen, Jesus made this very famous statement. God, man cannot serve God and mammon. What is Mammon. Well, mammon is literally wealth. It's a word that comes from a Chaldean origin, but it literally means wealth. The accumulation and the holding, the possession of that wealth. The sins of our culture are many, but one thing that identifies the American culture is materialism and consumerism and greed. And that avarice, that greed, that's mammon. Now, lest I be com uh, confused with a socialist, of which I am not, neither am I a communist, but I think it's important within the context of the church that believers have a balance. And the primary thing that drives the believer is Christ and His righteousness. So we see what the mindset of the Spirit looks like. Take a look at Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and here he's doing a contrast and compare again. He's given you the fruit, the byproducts of the flesh. Now he's going to give you the byproducts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the passion of flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now this would appear to be very straightforward. Paul's entire admonition is that the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to walk in obedience to Christ, 
to bear fruit for the kingdom of God and not walk in the deeds of the flesh. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I believe it's 8.3, for what the law could not do, Christ did. What couldn't the law do? The law could not produce righteousness in an individual. The law could not change the heart. The law could not affect the fallen nature of man. But what the law could not do, Christ did. That means if we are in Christ, we are equipped for righteousness. If we are in Christ, we are enabled and propelled through the Holy Spirit. But we still have a volition. And that volition has to have a heart that's turned to Christ. We have to have a disposition that is in submission to Christ. And if we do these things, what will happen? We will see the things of the world fade away and the things of Christ emerge. I remember in the 90s, oh boy. I know for some of you that seems like a long time ago, but for me it doesn't. But there used to be a worship song, and it used to say this, when I look into your holiness, when I, gauge in, when I gaze into your loveliness, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you, when I find the joy of reaching your heart, when my will is enthralled in your love, when all things that surround become shadows, in the light of you. And then the chorus says, I worship you. And it just keeps repeating, I worship you, I worship, you know. That is it. When all things that surround Christ become mere shadows in the light of Him, when there's nothing else that competes for the affection of Christ. When everything else is secondary, but my primary pursuit is to know God. Then I can come to that place of pure worship and adoration of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that's what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9.23, which... I've claimed for 35 years this is my life verse. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a, a wise man boast, boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me. I love that. And what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about is everything we've seen in the last four weeks that he knows, that he knows experientially, that he knows not merely intellectually, that he knows he doesn't just merely have data points, but he knows that he knows God and he is known by God. Isn't that the greatest thing that could be said about somebody? That brother, that sister knows God and guess what? God knows them. Wouldn't you want that to be the identifier of your life? That man, that woman, that brother, that sister walked with God. That's not going to happen via osmosis. That is not going to happen if you don't desire and you don't thirst for God. 
Else our Lord Jesus would have never have said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me share something else. If you make it your heart's intent, if you make it your purpose to hunger and thirst after God, it's not going to be all zippity doodah. The enemy is going to come because now the enemy, you become a mark of the enemy. Oh, that brother is pursuing. I don't want that brother to go. That sister is getting closer and closer to God. And we're going we're to put obstacles in his life. And we're going to come back at the enemy. And, and we're going to hit hard. But is it worth it? Absolutely. If there's anything that you can gain over the last four weeks, if we've talked about this pursuit of God, gain this. That what we are after, what the believers should be after, is that experiential knowledge of God, but it is also to know God and be known by God. Remember what the Lord said about Job when Satan was walking among the courts of heaven? And you know, he comes in there like the slithering slime ball that he is. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody on earth like him. I often thought about that. Who is the man of Job before the affliction? Boy, he had to be highly thought of for God to say, hey, search the earth. You're not going to find a man like him anywhere. Is it possible for God to say that about some of us? See, I believe it is. I believe that God is in one, one who wants to hide himself permanently and indifferently. I don't think that God is cryptic and he plays hide and seek. Oh, see if you can find me over here. Oh, you didn't look. Oh, you didn't. I believe that the scripture says that God wants himself to be found, but he wants men and women whose hearts are after God that are going to pursue God, that are serious for God and say, yes, Father, I want you. Listen, God saved you. If you are in Christ, I want you to get this. If you are in Christ, God did not save you so that you have the exact same life you had plus God. Can we agree to that? He didn't do a work of redemption. He didn't allow His Son to be brutalized on the cross so that you can continue to live the same nominal life that you lived. But now you have Jesus. And you're not going to hell. When you were saved, when you came to faith in Christ, you were born again. The old things had passed away. Everything had become new. All the sin, all of the filth, all of the depravity was buried with Christ. And you were raised in newness of life. And the righteousness of Christ was set upon you. And the grace of God, but something else happened. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that was given as a sign. And it is the Spirit of God that works sanctification in your life. Meaning, He is separating you apart unto the work of God. There is no agent 
in the known universe more powerful than the person of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more power than God's redemptive salvation that he pours out upon all those who are in Christ Jesus. And we think that, I got saved. 50, 60 years of just bad theology around the Holy Spirit has pervaded the church. On one extreme, you have people swinging from chandeliers, doing backflips and all kinds of things. On the other end, you have people that are colder than a dead fish. Which one are we to be? We're to be that radical miracle that God called us to be. The Spirit of God is still alive. The Spirit of God is working in the hearts and lives of believers. But as we yield ourselves to Christ, He becomes that passion. He becomes that power for our pursuit of God. As we yield ourselves to Him. I believe it is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that begins to move the believer to develop that power and that passion for the pursuit of God. Without it, the believer will not know that power, will not know that intimacy, and will not know that grace. And here's the tragedy. Many believers speak of a God whom they don't know. Many people who profess Christ speak of a Holy Spirit in whom they have never had an encounter with. If the things of this world take precedence over the things of God, then there's only one thing to do, and that is to repent. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones says this there is no age to advocate restraint. This is not the time. The church today does not need to be restrained, but to be aroused to be awakened, to be filled with the Spirit of glory. For she is failing the modern world. Leonard Ravenhill said this, This is an hour in need of burning hearts, bursting lips, and brimming eyes. If we were a tenth as spiritual as we think we are, our streets would be filled each Sunday with throngs of believers marching to Zion with sacks on their bodies and ashes on their shaking heads. And to both I say amen, and it is true. It always amazes me that well-meaning and professing Christians can get themselves all worked up all over the activities and the conspiracies of our day. They can get engrossed in conversation about politics, about the current virus, about elections and scandals, about the latest rumor. You can speak to them all, and all they will speak about are these things. And yet when it comes to the things of God, they seem to be speechless. When it comes to to pursuing the things of God, they seem to be indifferent and best, inept. That's the deception 
that the enemy plays. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 6 and 7, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to. And verse 8 I want to point out, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you can do all the good works you want. If you are not in the spirit of God, you're never, ever, ever going to please God. You're never going to satisfy that righteous requirement. Go down to verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, for you will live and you can see here that paul is encouraging them the obligation to the believer is not to the flesh we should not have that obligation our obligation is to the spirit our hearts should turn toward the things of the spirit we must as i said earlier seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and guess what all things will be added now a lot of people i speak to a lot of people that i have spoken to sometimes the conversation is this i don't know man i try i try i try but nothing seems to happen maybe it is I, i'm just not like you listen i mentioned this last week there aren't degrees of believers. There's just believers and unbelievers. That's it. If you are truly born again, you have the same Holy Spirit that I have residing in me. So there isn't degrees of believer. There isn't like believer basic, believer premium, believer super duper. There's just a believer. You're a Christian. And we have been equipped. But how could you expect the blessings of God and the manifold blessings of the Spirit if you seek not God? Which is the whole premise of this series. Pursue Him. He is worth it. Go after Him. You'll find your joy and pleasure in Him. And I wonder sometimes if we really believe what we say we believe for instance second corinthians 5 10 i want you to think about this for a moment second corinthians 5 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done whether good or bad Do you believe it? Seriously, I want you to think about it. Do you really believe it? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat of Christ. All of you, myself included, have an appointment. And guess what? One day we will stand before the seat of Christ. Now, I don't know about you. That kind of makes me a little bit nervous to, to say anything. 
You've heard me say this time and time again. I don't want to stand before the Lord with empty pockets. Okay, give an account for what you've done. Give an account for your salvation. Give an account. And I go, well, uh, uh, I went to church. Do we really believe it? Do we recognize the day's coming where we're going to give an account for what God has put into us and what we have done to advance the kingdom of God? I don't have time to go through an exposition of what judgment seat this is. I'll just say it's the Bema seat of Christ. But this is where we stand before the sovereign, holy Lord to be compensated yet. Is that not hysterical? To be compensated that the Lord will will provision some manner of reward for what we have done in the flesh. I know a lot of people who say, yeah, I I believe we're going to do that, but I'm not scared. You're not scared? Man, you must be golden. And in that day, let me share something with you. In that day, do you think all the things we spend our time on are going to really matter? Do you honestly think that we're going to get engaged with the Lord? Well, Lord, you know, when you sent me down to earth, all this happened politically. Do we honestly think that? That's the wood, hay, and stubble. That's the stuff that's going to be tried by fire, is going to be burned up, and there's going to be nothing left. Oh, to pursue God is the most important thing we can do. To pursue Christ is the most important thing to do. To come to know Him. To come to find our worth in Him. To find our identity in Him. There is nothing more important than that. Because if we do, we will be used mightily by the King. Church, a believer enjoys eternal life with God that is overflowing, eternally abundant. When someone comes to faith in Christ Jesus, eternal life begins that very day and never ends. Death is just a momentary blip. And here's a bulletin in case you haven't noticed. I I read this survey. I read this study. And this is what it said. This is a gem. You better get it. It said 10 out of 10 people will die. I want you to make sure you get that point. 10 out of 10 people will die. And then what? And then the judgment. Oh, church, we're living in the final hour. The Scripture said that in those days, Because of lawlessness, most people's hearts are going to grow cold. That there's going to come a great apostasy, a hardening, a moving away from the things of scriptural truth. That the faith is going to be waning, but those who know their God will display strength. How do we know our God if we don't yearn for Him? if we don't desire Him, if we don't pursue Him. Listen, you can have a Bible, you can memorize it from Genesis to Revelation. You could, you could be 20 hours a day in the Word of God. And by the way, that would be a great thing. But let me share something to you. 
It's not knowing just merely the Word of God, but it's knowing the God of the Word. And it's coming into the fullness of who He is. And it's aligning our will with His will. And let me share something. It is the person of the Holy Spirit that becomes that passion, that becomes that power, and gives us that enablement for that pursuit. And the pursuit never ends. You know when it ends? When you take your last breath and that last heartbeat. That's when it ends. So Paul in verses 12 and 13 tells us how the Spirit gives us power for the pursuit. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are what? What are we doing by the Spirit? We are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And he says, if we do that, we will live. What did Jesus, I shared with you last week. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. He who seeks to save his life shall lose it. And then the glorious verse found in verse 14. And I love this. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. Great word, that word led. It means to bring, to carry, to those that are bringing, those that are carrying, those that are moving forward in the Spirit of God. Hey, you know what is characteristic of them? Here it is. These are the sons of God. These are the ones that God is using. These are the ones that God is moving in. These are the ones that God is doing a great work in. Oh, to be in that throng. Oh, to be in that company. That it would be said of us that we are being moved. We are being led. We are being carried by the Spirit of God. You know, if you look at the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation you're going to find the following characteristic of believers. Believers are known by the following characteristics. They abide in the Spirit. They walk in the Spirit. They are led by the Spirit. They are known by the Spirit. They rejoice in the Spirit. They pray in the Spirit. Have peace in the Spirit. Produce fruit of the Spirit. Speak by the Spirit. Are anointed by the Spirit. Discern by the Spirit. Understand by the Spirit. Are indwelt by the Spirit. Are filled with the Spirit. Love in the Spirit. Forgive in the Spirit. Fear the Lord in the Spirit. Fellowship in the Spirit. Bear witness to one another in the Spirit. These are the characteristics of the believers in Jesus Christ. And let me say this, this the, the Christian life is not defined in what we say or what we may even believe. The Christian life is defined by the grace of Jesus Christ shed abroad in our hearts by faith and demonstrating the Spirit of Christ within us. 
Look what Paul says in verse 15 of Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, what does he do? Bears witness. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And he goes on and he adds this. Here's the pursuit. Here's the power. Here's the passion. Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, listen, this blows me away. Heirs with God and heirs with Christ? What, what, what do I do to deserve to be a fellow heir with Jesus Christ? And you know what the answer is? I did nothing. Amen, brother? I did nothing. God's magnanimous, God's re, uh, uh, overwhelming grace has been poured out and shed apart in my life. Look what he says. And if children heirs also with God, fellow heirs with Christ, notice, if we indeed suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Lord, it's not automatic. You got to keep going. We got to keep pursuing. We got to keep pressing on. And the implication of Paul in, the, in all of his epistles is look, this is going to cost you something. Look, there are going to be many who come against you. There are going to be people that are real close to you that, that will turn on you, that will set themselves against you. You're going to have to endure. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. But suffer with Christ. Hold on. Listen, the church needs to know. Hold on. Grab hold of Jesus. And don't let go. Don't let go. A.W. Tozer said this, the difference between spiritual things and earthly things is that the things of the Spirit are so modest the things of the Spirit are not pushing on you. They are not singing commercials to you. They are not knocking on your door and urging you to buy. They are simply waiting for you to notice. However, if we are going to pursue Christ, if we are going to pursue the things of the Spirit as God intends, then we can come to that place where our lives are transformed by the power of God that we are men and women full of the Holy Spirit. And let me share something. It is there. It is there. We will find our passion for our pursuit. It is there when we have yielded ourselves. It is there when we have shed every restraint. It is there when we have brought every sin to the altar of God. It is there when we have knocked off through the power of the Holy Spirit every idol upon our heart and said, Lord, kill them all, that only Christ would remain. That passion can only come from the Holy Spirit. It is born in the Holy Spirit and is empowered in the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. We've not received the Spirit of the world, we've received the Spirit of God. 
And let us always remember that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are indeed the sons, the children of God. So in closing, four weeks ago we began this message series with the pursuit of God with Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. And through that first message in Psalm 42, we went to the object of our pursuit found in Philippians 3.7. To defining Christ, the object of our pursuit in Philippians verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And now through the passion of our pursuit found in Romans 8, 5 through 8. There has been one consistent theme. Pursue. Pursue. Somebody walked in here today and robbed us. And somebody said, you know what? Go get him. Now if they said that to me, and I stood here and go, yeah, I, I'm going to go get him. See, I believed he robbed us. I believed that he has all of our money. And I also believe that if I don't pursue him, he's going to escape with all of our money. And you would look at me and say, what are you waiting for? Pursue him. That would be a lot different, right? Then the crook runs out and I run after him. And I chase him down the street. And in my version of that, I tackle him. I secure him. I tie him up, wait for the police to come. I take his, all the money out and I give it back to every. And then all of you go, wow, you're so good. You're so... <laughs> Only joking. I think you, you get the point right? Many Christians say, I believe. I believe that Christ is the Son of God. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that He can bring me into all fullness and immeasurable wealth. And that's where it ends. What good is it if you don't pursue when I started the sermon series, I made a statement. I said, I think this is the singular most critical issue in the church today. We have talked so much of passive Christianity. You don't have to do anything. Oh, you're not justified by works. What does the human heart always do? Oh, no works, no works, right? So we don't do any works. What do people do? Oh, he's such a legalist. He's such a legalist. I have freedom in Christ. What do they do? They go out and live licentiously. That's always the response to the human heart because the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. And who can know it? I'll tell you who can know it. Jeremiah 17, 10. For I, the Lord, know the heart, and I render to each man according to his deed. Today we gave out Gospels of John. And I shared with you what's the purpose of it. 
It shouldn't stay in your home. If you're going to take it, give it away to somebody. Let's put an end to passive Christianity. And let's put an end to proactive Christianity that seeks the things of God, that pursues the things of the Spirit, that we would pursue and we would know Him. Let him who boasts, boast of this, says the prophet Jeremiah, that he knows and he understands me. For I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, righteousness, and justice on the earth. For I delight in these things, saith the Lord. May that be the testimony of all of our lives when we stand before the Lord on that great day. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you today, we bow in humility before you. None of the things that we spoke about is even obtainable in our flesh. For in our flesh is there such wickedness. It is only made possible by the sanctifying work of Christ through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Even our Lord said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't, the helper, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside, one another of the same kind. And he will remind you of all things. And he will speak to you regarding the truth. Oh God, I pray, Lord, please, Father, please, may we put an end to passive Christianity. That each and every person who hears this message, Lord, would leave this place, Lord God, with the resolve that I am going to pursue my God, that I want to know God, and I want to be known by You. And Father, if there are any, if there are any who don't know, Lord, because they haven't been saved and born again. Father, but they feel the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit upon them. Father, that, Lord, you would draw them unto yourself. You would convict them of their sin. And you would point them to Christ that they may cry out and say, Lord Jesus, save me lest I die. And come in repentance of sin and by grace and faith be born again, Lord. Father, we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.